chapter number two this morning. Luke chapter number two, uh, as we take a look at the real story of Christmas here in Luke's account, chapter number two. While you're turning there, I kind of want to get a feel uh, for what everyone's plans are. Christmas always kind of depends on how, how the day falls, and this year it falls on a Monday. And so I want to ask, how many of you uh, are having a Christmas celebration of some sort with family or friends today? How many of you are celebrating Christmas with family or friends today? Okay, good. How many of you are celebrating Christmas in some way, dinner, presents, whatever, tomorrow with family or friends? Okay, how many of you are doing both? All right, how many of you have got three you've got going on? All right, I love it, I love it. The more Christmas is the merrier, right? Our kids... Uh, they, we thought they had two, and then another family member sent this massive load of gifts, and so it turned into three Christmases this year, and uh, certainly it's, it's just fun to celebrate with family and friends, and so thankful uh, that most of us probably work for places that recognize this holiday, and that's a wonderful gift, isn't it? We have a lot of traditions, uh, don't we, when it comes to Christmas? I bet you, when it comes to this room there's probably as many varieties of Christmas traditions as there are people. Now, I don't know what Christmas traditions you have. I'd love to hear on your way out uh, some fun traditions you do as a family. Maybe we'll steal one of them and implement it into our family schedule. But in the Collins family, it is not Christmas unless there is monkey bread. How many of y'all know what some monkey bread is? Okay, if you don't know what monkey bread is, talk to me after, I'll introduce you to one of the greatest foods God has ever made through the hands and the work of my wife, and it's called monkey bread. I love sweets, and it's a combination of carbs and sweets. It is a delightful treat, and in the Collins household growing up, that became a tradition, and in the Mike and Shelby Collins household, it is now a tradition. Christmas morning would not be the same without monkey bread. My wife asked me yesterday, what would you do if I forgot? And I said, I would remind you. That's what I would do. And then, and then she, and then I was like, and if I reminded you and we didn't have the supplies, I would go get them. And if I remind you and we didn't have the supplies and you didn't want to make it, I would go get the supplies and this would be a miracle of God itself. I would make the monkey bread myself. That's how important it is to me. Now there's other interesting traditions. I was doing some research on this in the Venezuelan capital of Caracas. They roller skate to church on Christmas Day. That would be an interesting sight at Fellowship Baptist Church if we roller skated this morning. I would fear for the health and safety of many of you if we roller skated to church. Uh, in Japan, some of you can get on board this tradition, I think. In Japan, while we have ham or turkey or beef, it is the most eloquent feast in Japan. It would not be Christmas without a good bucket of greasy KFC chicken. Not, not joking, there are lines at KFC for blocks and blocks and blocks to get your hands on one of the world's rarest dishes, KFC fried chicken. That's how they celebrate in Japan. I mean, Christmas is an amazing holiday because we all put so much emphasis on it because of our traditions. But here's the danger of traditions. The danger is that we can fall into a pattern of doing something and not knowing why we do it. I bet you if you ask someone on the street in Japan, why do you eat 
KFC chicken for Christmas. There's so many other better and much more healthy foods. They would probably say, it's what we do. And I want to speak to us as a church this morning and warn us that I would hate for us to get to Christmas or Christmas Eve and the way that we carry ourselves out, if someone were to ask us, why do you celebrate Christmas? Sure, we could spit out the answer about Jesus being born, but at the deepest heart of it, we would be celebrating not because we appreciate the message, but because we've fallen into a pattern of tradition. What I want to show you this morning is that the Bible gives us every indication that Christmas is an occasion that deserves an extraordinary celebration. Christmas is an occasion that does not just deserve traditional average celebration, but what we're gonna see in Luke chapter number two is this occasion of Christmas is so huge that Luke shows us how extraordinary the celebration was when Jesus was born. And he's going to show us this in three movements. He's going to show us how Jesus was born in an unorthodox birthplace. He's going to show us the unexpected good news of Christmas. Because here's the truth. If you want to celebrate Christmas properly, we've all got to get on the same page about what it is that is so good about Christmas. I mean, it's more than the presents and the monkey bread and the KFC, right? There's something more profound to Christmas. And Luke 2 is going to show us the real essence of the good news of Christmas. And then we're going to end the passage in Luke 2 seeing this unending celebration. Luke, literally, the way he writes his story is he wants us to get the idea that, yes, Christ was born and he was celebrated at the moment of his birth, but the way the story ends is that we should continue celebrating because it leaves us on a cliffhanger. The passage this morning is going to answer two questions. What is it that we celebrate at Christmas? And maybe for many of you who are long-time church people and Christians, the second question might be more helpful to you, is how can we celebrate Christmas? Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you you need to have more decorations or more traditions. The passage is gonna give us a more meaningful way to celebrate Christmas. And like me, as I study this, I hope you'll reflect more deeply on the holiday that God has brought us to at this point in our calendar year. I want you to see, first of all, in verses one through seven, this unorthodox birthplace that Jesus was born in. We all know how the story begins, probably. But let's look at Luke chapter number two and read a few verses together, starting in verse number one. It says, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. What's interesting about the Christmas story is that it begins with a Roman governor's power move. What's going on in this passage is it's when we read the word taxing, we think that they're collecting money from this person, but what's actually going on in the story here is that they are conducting a census, like we just got 
done with a few years ago in our country. And the way that Roman law was written is you could kind of arbitrarily have a census. And the reason for the census was kind of similar to why our government does it. They wanted to get a record of their tax base. And it was important for these leaders to do that. It was kind of a way of showing off the strength of the empire. And so Cyrenius and, of course, Caesar Augustus are trying to get a a measurement of the influence and the power that they have in the Roman Empire. And so they're calling everyone to go back to their hometown so that they could be counted properly. It wouldn't all just happen on one day, much like our census, it would take place over time. Well, as we talked about last week, here we have this very young, kind of out of, uh, you know, in the lower class couple, Joseph and Mary. And they're not married yet, they're engaged. Mary is pregnant, Uh, she's great with child. And they are now traveling away from home, 90 miles away from home. Now, for most of us, 90 miles is nothing. There's some in our crowd who've traveled much more than 90 miles today. That's a little bit, you know, a few miles longer than maybe going to Liberal or Dodge City. But on foot, that's a several-day journey. And some of y'all ladies know, when you're pregnant, that is a monster journey, traveling 90 Miles. Maybe she had a donkey or something to accompany her, but nonetheless, this was a, a pretty significant journey. They're being completely displaced, not by their own will, but because of a Roman governor who just simply wants to show off how strong and powerful he is. Could you imagine, ladies, how you feel at eight months pregnant? I'm sure if you're like uh, I would be, though I'm not a lady, if I was in that situation, that whole trip. I don't think I would have a smile on my face, would you? Be complaining, would be frustrated. My feet would be tired, right? Swollen, all that stuff. And here this young couple is, and it seems like they are the victims of an oppressive government. But what Luke shows us is that this oppressive power move by a Roman governor actually served the purposes of God. Look at verse number four. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. What you may not recognize just reading that verse, Luke's a little more subtle about it than Matthew is, that the, the scriptures were very clear the promised king, the savior of the world, the Messiah, was going to be born in the city of David. And what's interesting, most people would have expected as they read those prophecies to actually be thinking of Jerusalem, Zion. That's the city of David. But yet they often forgot that there was another city of David, a much less significant city of David. That would be the town of Bethlehem. That's why we have the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, because in their minds, that's not where they would have even thought that the Messiah would have come from. There was only one little verse in Micah chapter number five that prophesied he would be born here. But here's the point of the passage, that because of the oppressive power move of this Roman governor, Mary and Joseph are gonna be in the exact place they need to be to fulfill their destiny and God's plans for them. And I think this applies to a lot of us 
in a lot of different situations of life because what can be tempting is for us to view ourselves as victims of our circumstances. For us to see that we are the victims of someone who's much more powerful than us, of circumstances that are out of our control, of people that we cannot influence. And it seems like, maybe like Mary and Joseph felt on that 90-mile journey, that we are not in control of our own lives. They didn't even get to choose where they spent that day. They had to be in the city of David. But what Luke chapter number two shows us, my friend, is that you may feel like you're a victim of your circumstances, but your circumstances are always under the control of a sovereign, all-powerful God. Ironically, Caesar Augustus is trying to flex his kingly muscles, and unwittingly, Caesar Augustus is fulfilling the very scriptures that God himself had written. I was reading last night in an in a old book called the Didache. It was like the... Uh, the kids for truth of the first century, you know, it's like how they discipled new Christians. And I, I loved what they, what the translation of one of the statements they wrote in their manual for new Christians. This is how they would have taught people right after Paul's time. I love this statement. It says, whatever happens to you, accept it as good, knowing that nothing is done without God. Here's a pregnant woman who is away from home. Can you imagine how terrible that would be to not even give birth in your own home, your own hometown? Felt like a victim, but yet here what this passage shows us is that nothing is bad. Nothing is done without God. And then it gets worse, actually, because they show up at this town, and here's a pregnant woman, and you'd at least figure, you know, I can imagine Joseph, hey, Mary, I promise I'll find us the best place we can to stay. My, my, my uncle Matthew, he's got the best house. He's got a really cozy guest house. I know, I wish we could have the baby back home, but I promise you I'll find us a good place to stay. But here's what we find in verse number seven, that with all of their efforts, you know the phrase, right? There was what? No room for them in the end. Now, a lot of us, here's what we picture. We picture Matt, uh, Joseph and Mary, you know, knocking on the door of the Hilton Garden Inn and then going to the Motel 6 and then they settle for the even lower motel and they're finding everyone's booked up. But what's actually the reality here is that this word inn is not just speaking of a hotel. It's speaking of a guest house, a katalima is the Greek word for it. And here's what they're doing. All the hotels were probably booked too, but they were so poor, they probably couldn't afford to stay in a proper hotel. So they were knocking on the doors of their relatives to stay in their guest house. But they couldn't even find a guest house to stay in. They couldn't even find a spare bedroom to stay in. And what we read between the lines and find out is that in a lot of these homes, they had farm animals. That was a lot more common than it is in our day. They would have like a den that was on a lower level from their living room. It had a dirt floor, and that's where they would put the animals to bed at night to stay out of the elements. And it was in that place reserved for farm animals, not a proper even guest chamber, that Mary and Joseph spent the night giving birth to the king of kings. Verses one through seven show us this really bleak scene. It's not first best or second best or third best. It's they're getting leftovers. They're getting the last of the last of all the resources they would need for the birth of this king. But then the camera seems to switch and pan over to a different 
location in the same kind of area of the country. It pans away from Mary and Joseph, and it goes out on the hillside, outside of the city, not where the ruling class stayed, but where a bunch of stinky, smelly shepherds were watching their sheep. And verses 8 through 12 show us this unexpected good news of Christmas. Now, if you're going to understand verses 8 through 12, you have to recognize how these shepherds were viewed in first century life. A lot of us, we have a very romantic view of shepherds because one of the greatest kings in the Bible, David, was a shepherd, right? But in their day, shepherds were like super low-class, blue-collar people. In fact, in the the Jewish law, um, working with animals like shepherds did, you were actually considered defiled in the eyes of the law, which meant this. Not only did you need to take a good shower before you could go worship at the temple, but you had to purify yourself for seven days before you could go worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, y'all are working class people enough to know what working class person can set aside seven days to purify themselves and not work their regular job just so they can go to the temple? Not really anybody. And so what was the occasion for these shepherds? They almost never went to the temple except for certain high celebrations and feasts. And so here are these lower class people in the eyes of the ruling class people in Jerusalem. They'd be like the the politicians and the elite in the capital cities of America. That's the type of people we're dealing with here. And on the hillside are these people who not only are they lower class economically, but they themselves rarely get to worship in the temple. But what's amazing is if you read the story, God, in a way, makes a temple out of a hillside. Look at verse number eight in Luke chapter number two. It says, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. It says in verse number nine, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. Now stop right there. The angel of the Lord only shows up like a handful of times in scripture. And here's the type of people the angel of the Lord shows up to visit in the scripture. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Elijah, shepherds. And then it says in verse number nine, that the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. Now, what's even more significant about this is this is the type of language that the Old Testament uses when God's presence filled the tabernacle. When God's presence came down on Mount Sinai. When God's presence filled the temple. And here's what Luke is trying to show us. That the same way God's presence was manifest in the very temple of God, on this night... God's special presence was made known to shepherds. Not the people you see at the temple every day. Not the people who had the attention of the press. But stinky, oft-forgotten shepherds. Now, someone who's reading this is going to have to say, well, hold on a second. I mean, if you're wanting to make a big splash, God, a big PR move, you might want to choose a different location. Perhaps the place where everyone is, Jerusalem. 
That would be a good idea, not Bethlehem and not in the countryside. God, if you want to make a big PR move, you should probably have the angel announce this good news to a king. I don't know, to a news media outlet, something, but to a bunch of shepherds. We have to ask, why would God bring this good news to the least esteemed people in society? Well, the angel's message gives us that answer. Let's read the angel's message in verse 10, 11, and 12. And the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, and I love the next phrase, which shall be to who? All people, all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now what's interesting about verse number 12 is here the shepherds are hearing this announcement of this incredible prophecy from the Old Testament being fulfilled. We talked about last week, right? The King of Kings, the whole Old Testament is hanging on the hopes of a Davidic king. And the angel says that king is born in Bethlehem. Okay, that's kind of a a plot twist, but we can run with that. So they're thinking, let's go find the most important guy in Bethlehem. Let's go find a priest in Bethlehem. Maybe it's his kid. And the angel says, no, to show you how much this message is for all people, go find the baby that's wrapped in poor man's rags. Go find the baby that's not born in a proper crib, but is laying in a feeding trough. What Luke is trying to show us this morning about the message of Christmas is that Christmas is the celebration of a savior that brings good news to all people. What is that good news? Well, verse 11 tells us that this baby is a savior. And I love how Matthew puts it. And he shall save people from their sins. And as we read Luke chapter number two, it's very obvious that this savior is not just for the important or the highly esteemed. No, the good news of Christ is for all sinners, all of them, every kind, every variety, every type you could possibly imagine. This savior is offering salvation to people of every background, every sinful past, every mistake. And I would reckon there are probably some of us in here who at times we feel like shepherds, too dirty to be in the presence of God. And yet here's the angel showing up and it's showing us that the good news of Christ, here's the message of Christmas. Christ's salvation meets you where you're at. Christ's salvation finds you at your address. The incarnation, the the, the Christmas that we celebrate is the message that God, when offering salvation to us, he did not call us up to himself. He did not call us to get some things straightened out so that we could come and find his good graces. No, 
The message of Christmas is this. God humbled himself and stooped down to meet you where you're at. To meet you where you're at. The message of Christmas is for all types of sinners. There's not a single person in here who sinned so much that Christ's incarnation can't meet you where you're at. The message of Christ is for all types of people. Every variety of person, every class of person. And I love the Gospel of Luke and many of the other Gospels because they do so well at highlighting this. Think about the people that Luke highlights who are always hearing the good stuff first. There are two huge events in the Gospels. The birth of Christ, and then what's the last one? The resurrection of Christ. Think of who always gets the good news first. In the birth of Christ... It's a washed up old priest in a woman who in their society was very lowly esteemed. She couldn't have children. It's a virgin woman of unknown origin. It's a bunch of stinky shepherds that society had rejected and thought were unimportant. And yet at the very end of the gospel, it's also going to be unimportant people who get the good news first. Is it the disciples who gave their lives to serve Jesus? No. It's some women which in first century society were not viewed as important. And yet God is going to show that our class does not define our importance in his eyes because his most significant messages are first conveyed to people who don't matter very much in the eyes of society. Luke is going to highlight how Romans and how lepers and how Samaritans are important in the eyes of God. And he's going to show us, like he does in Luke chapter number two, that Christ is for everybody. You know why? Because everybody shares at least one problem in common. We are all sinners. In this room, we all have other, all sorts of problems. Very diverse problems, let me tell you. And I only know about a few of them. I know my problems. I got some weird problems I'm dealing with in my life. You got some weird problems you're probably dealing with in your life. But you know what I know we all have? All of us have broken God's commands. So I've only broken a few. Well, one's enough. One's enough to render you in need of a savior. One is enough in the eyes of a holy God to demonstrate that you need salvation or you will not enter the presence of God when you die. One sin's enough. And every person in here has at least met that standard, right? We've all fallen short at least one time, right? And so here's what we recognize. If all of us have sinned, we all share the same problem of needing a savior because we all share the same destiny of eternal judgment, And yet Christ's incarnation, his birth into this world was to fix that fundamental problem that is shared by all of humanity. If you're here this morning and you are not sure what will happen when you die, I can promise you that the message of Christmas is this. Christ came and he died for you to fix that problem. That is the good news of Christmas. Heaven came down to earth to make a way back to heaven for you. Now, I know for most of you, you know, I've heard that before. Every Christmas, it's the same message. Well, maybe for you, you could listen 
as Luke gives us an inside, some inside baseball on how the first Christmas was celebrated. Because really Luke's message here is not just about the good news of Christmas, but he really wants to show us how people responded. And maybe as you and I listen to the good news of Christmas and we once again reflect on it because the calendar kind of forces us to, maybe you and I can get some ideas on how we can celebrate Christmas together this year. I want you to notice that Luke seems to give us a big contrast of who is involved in this big celebration. Look at verse 13, who's celebrating in verse number 13, the birth and the good news of the Savior. It's not just one angel. Now it says, and suddenly there was a host of angels. By the way, that's, that's like an army of angels. There was a multitude, the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Notice verse number 14. I, I love verse 14. You might meditate on this, this Christmas holiday that the message of the angels is this that the birth of the Savior brings glory to God in heaven, but it solves the problems of men on earth. It brings God glory to God in the highest, but on earth it brings peace and goodwill to men. Literally, the message of Christmas is a message, something we're celebrating that spans the gap between heaven and earth. But what's interesting is Luke very intentionally ends his story with a different group of people sounding oddly similar to the angels. The angels would be the highest of the highest beings. But look at who is ending the story, glorifying and praising God in verse number 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. What's Luke's main idea here? Luke is showing us that the good news of Christ's birth deserves the celebration of the highest and the lowest and everything in between. If the angels celebrate this holiday, and the stinky shepherds celebrated this holiday, my friends, we ought to join in. We ought to celebrate and join in in this chorus of unending celebration of the good news of Christ's birth. And I wanna give you five ways we can celebrate this season. They'll go quickly. I'll get you out on time. I promise. Here's the first one. This was the most interesting. They celebrated with examination. Examination. So the angels appear to the shepherds in verses like, you know, 9 through 13 or whatever, and they say, here's the message. There's a Savior born unto you in the city of David, Bethlehem. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And here's what the shepherds do. Or let me say this. Here's what they don't do. They don't just take the angel's word for it and say, let's go celebrate. They go and find out for themselves What's going on here? They hear the message, but they examine it more closely. Look at verse number 15. This is their their own decision. The, The angels didn't tell them. 
The shepherds said to one another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known to us. And then verse 19, it shows Mary doing the same thing. You would think of all people, Mary should be the one celebrating. She had the miraculous appearance of the angel telling her what's going on. She had these random shepherds. Imagine that. Ladies, I've been around enough women who've just had a baby to know. I think the last thing a woman wants after they've had a child is a bunch of random people showing up, right? But here's all these shepherds showing up. And then a few years later, a bunch of guys from a different country show up and they want to worship this kid. You would think of all people, Mary would have had it figured out. But verse 19 says, she wasn't in wonder and awe yet. She kept these things in her heart and was pondering them. She was examining. See, Mary at this point was not yet to the recognition of the significance of the child that she had just given birth to, but what verse number 33 shows us is that the day would come just a little bit later that she would marvel at the occasion that she was a participant in. This Christmas, friends, I wanna encourage you to celebrate in a way maybe you don't often celebrate. I want to encourage you to celebrate Christmas by considering Christ more deeply than you have before. To examine this message. Maybe there's some of our friends here this morning that are not a Christian. You wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian. You have not yet repented of your sins and trusted in the complete work of Jesus. I want to say to you, no biggie. Not all, I would say very few of us have received the message of Christianity on our first hearing of it, but I would encourage you this Christmas to maybe give this message a closer look. If you're not a Christian, ask yourself, why on earth is all of all of God's good people celebrating this holiday from Venezuela on roller skates to Japan with Kentucky fried chicken to America with Christmas trees, why would all of the earth be celebrating something that's a complete lie? Examine it. Read a little bit about it. Consider Christ in the quiet moments of the holiday, you know, after you filled your tummy with monkey bread or ham or the like. Maybe open up your phone and read a blog post about Christ and the incarnation. Read Luke chapter one and two and maybe three and four and five. Examine Christ. Look at him more than you have before. Let the still moments of these holidays give you time to examine Christ deeper than you have before. Here's the second response, and this one's my favorite. It's evangelism. I love the quickness to share the message from the shepherds. They went and they went and saw, and then look at verse number 16, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So they confirmed what the angel said. In verse 17, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. They published it widely is the idea. And look at verse 18, there's a a pretty big effect here. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So we get the idea that these shepherds, after they confirm the presence of the Savior, after they see the sign 
of the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. They go examine, and once they confirm the truth of the gospel message, they go out, and they immediately publish it to everyone who will listen to them. Now, as I picture myself in the story here, I imagine they didn't have a lot of context with all the important people in society, maybe, but they had that guy who bought the wool from their sheep to make clothes. They had that other family who often bought a lamb from them for a Passover meal. They have these other people that they do business with. They have other people that maybe used to be shepherds and gave them good advice on an occasion or two. And they're telling everybody they can the good news of Christmas. Now what I know, I'm I'm being realistic and I'm speaking myself too. When it comes to Christmas, let's be honest, evangelism Sharing the gospel, telling others about Christ, ironically, is probably the last thing on our minds, right? Some of y'all, you got meals you got to fix today. You got presents you still haven't wrapped. You've got kiddos that you got to manage. You've got family coming over or places you're traveling to. You've got all sorts of things on your plate. And I recognize that evangelism probably is the last thing on your mind. Same here. But here's what I want to help you with. I think there's one or two or three things that even in a busy Christmas season, you can think about that will help you with your evangelism this year. And it doesn't require something huge and profound, okay? It doesn't require you to be some great gospel preacher. So listen very closely, and I think this will help you. Because I would reckon most of you are probably around somebody who is not a Christian. Now, you might be like, no, all my family is Christians. Well, some of you all have little kids who need to grow up and learn about Christ. So let me give you just two or three simple ways. I'm not asking you to preach a sermon, okay? So rest easy, right? But two or three simple ways. You can share the good news of Christ, even at Christmas when you've got a thousand other things on your mind, okay? Here's the first one. Think about evangelism when it comes to your children, Look, I'm not saying you need to get up on a soapbox and preach the gospel to your kids, but many of you are going to have kids or grandkids or maybe even great-grandkids opening presents this year. Just telling you, it's a really easy way for you to talk about Christ. Surely, at one point in the day, you could ask your kids, have you ever wondered why you get a bunch of free stuff on Christmas? Have you ever wondered why you get a bunch of gifts on Christmas? And then you could, in three sentences, parents or grandparents, you could tell them that we give free gifts on Christmas, or maybe Santa does, because we are celebrating the greatest free gift God gave to us. You don't have to be a preacher to say that one, do you? Some of you, you could maybe, I know many families do this. They read the Christmas story. Maybe out of Luke chapter number two before they open presents. Hey, I want to give you permission in our, our tech-savvy society Maybe you would read the story or you would watch a simple video. I would be happy to send you a link of a good animated video that's short, because kids need short ones, right? That explains the gospel from the Christmas story. It would be another way for you to share the gospel with your kids or grandkids this Christmas. Now, a lot of us, we don't think about it this way, but another way you could evangelize this Christmas is through prayer. Many of you, I know, are gonna be gathered around a table with family for a meal. And some of that family may not believe in Christ, 
Or we could say this, some of that family may need to be reminded of the good news of Christmas like we hopefully are this morning. And I want to encourage you to think about prayer as a mechanism for evangelism in a way that maybe you haven't before. A lot of times when we come to that family meal prayer, you know, most of us men who are, you know, forced to do that, it's kind of a last minute thought, right? Uh, God uh, bless us food, amen, right? But may I challenge some of you who might be wording a family prayer this Christmas to think about in your prayer, as you're praying to God, carefully articulating the good news of the gospel as you give thanks to God for this holiday and this food you will be partaking of. Here's the third way that you might consider evangelizing this Christmas or around other holidays. Some of you all are going to have some extra time off. Some of that will be spent with family, and that's a beautiful thing. Rest with family is a gift from God. You might have some extra days off, and I want to encourage you, maybe for some of you who find yourself kind of twiddling your thumbs around the house, and, or, or maybe, you know, finding a way to use that time where you have a teenage kid who says they're, the dangerous word, they're bored, right? I would encourage you to, to use that extra time to show the love of Christ, no doubt if you go and you bake goodies for someone or you uh, do something to help out your lonely neighbor or your coworker or someone who's in need, they might ask you or they might say something like, wow, thanks. It'd be such an easy avenue for you to share the good news of Jesus in just a sentence or two by saying something like this. Hey, it's not a problem at all. Christ has been so good to our family. We just wanted to do the same for you. Respond with evangelism. Number three, we can respond with awe, with wonder. That's how the crowd responded in verse 18, right? As they heard the evangelism of the shepherds, it says that all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, I think awe is not often a part of our lives, but I think the best way I can describe this, this idea here in wondering or in awe of the message of Christmas is how I often feel, maybe you've been in this situation, if you've had someone who's been extraordinarily generous to you, unexpectedly, you know how I often find myself responding to that is I'll, I'll, when that gift is given, my wife and I will talk, wow, that was really generous of them. But then like five hours later, we're sitting at night on our couches, and I'll say it again. You know, that was really nice of them. You know what I'm talking about? And you keep reflecting on it and think about how amazing that experience was or that person was, that, though you may not realize it, that is awe. That is wonder. And we ought to do the same with the generous gift of our Savior this Christmas. This Christmas, here's what I want you to do. I want you to allow yourself to be pleasantly surprised by the grace of God. Because if we all rightly reflect on it, we know we didn't deserve it. And here's the last one, and we'll be done. We respond with praise. As those shepherds did in verse number 20, when it says that they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Our passage this morning quite literally is peppered with praise. Angels singing, crowds wondering, shepherds praising. And it seems like that one of the common themes in all of the gospels when it comes to the incarnation is that when we grasp the good news of Christmas, we will celebrate with praise to the God who gave us 
this great gift. This morning, I want to remind you that the good news of Christmas deserves an extraordinary celebration. And an extraordinary celebration doesn't mean you add more Christmas lights or a bigger tree, although those are good things too. It means that maybe this Christmas you sit back and you think about Christ a little bit more. Read a book. Read a passage of the Bible and examine him. Sit back in awe of the grace that he's shown you. And maybe tell someone else about the good news. And certainly as we've done this morning and as we'll do following our prayer together, let's sing praise to the God of heaven who chose to send his son to be born on earth. I want you to join me in a word of prayer 